We've been getting loads of questions from you guys about IR35 or off payroll working. So we've brought an expert from our network of specialist medical advisors to tell us what you need to know about IR35. We start simple, but by the end, things do get pretty complex, but I hope that it's useful to you. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to our podcast to keep getting the latest financial news for doctors, dentists and other healthcare professionals. As ever, this podcast is for entertainment only and does not constitute advice. If you do need advice, Medics Money can match your individual requirements to a specialist advisor from our nationwide network of the very best advisors, verified by us with reviews from doctors like you. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins, and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to introduce a specialist in IR35. So thank you so much for joining us today, Glenn. Do you want to tell the Medics Money podcast listeners a bit about yourself and why you're qualified to talk on today's fairly complicated subject? Yeah, yeah. thanks, Tommy. Um, as my name's Glenn Huckster. I'm a senior manager um, at Mazars uh, in the employment tax team down in London. Uh, work nationally. Uh, but my main area of uh, specialism within employment taxes is employment status and IR35. So I've been uh, one of the key leads at our firm in rolling out uh, our IR35 uh, propositions to our clients. Um, and I've been in taxes now for 30 plus years, uh, both in personal tax and employment taxes. So I'm aware of the history of IR35, uh, where it started from, uh, right into, up until today's point. Yeah, so you mentioned the history of IR35 because it goes back a long way. So should we just go through a quick um, summary of what we're going to talk about today and then get into the history of IR35 and off-payroll working rules? Yeah, so I think, Tommy, if we just um, if we do sort of like a quick recap of um, where we are with R35, um, we can then talk around when the new off payroll working rules in R35 applies, uh, the obligations that fall on end clients under those rules. And then to finish off, we can cover um, employment status, uh, which would include some of the particular rules um, to office holders, which is something that I've seen come up quite often within the medical profession. It definitely. We are getting asked about this all the time by doctors. Um, so this is going to be so useful to so many people. So let's talk about the history of IR35 and the new off-payroll working rules, because it's evolved over many, many years. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, um, you know, to start with, it was introduced back in 2000. Um, and, and essentially what it was to uh, catch were um, what I deem as like false self-employment, where somebody um, is working similar to an employee, but they're actually operating through their own intermediary. And by that, we mean um, normally it's their personal service company. Um, and then that meant that there's been a loss of uh, revenue to um, HMRC. And it's been estimated to be somewhere in the region of about, you know, over 500 million pounds. Uh, so it's a plug that or a hole that um, HMRC have wanted to plug for a long time. But it's been so complex that it wasn't until April 2017 
that HMRC rolled out the the off payroll working rules for the public sector. And I sat in some uh, roundtable discussions with HMRC at the time before they were bringing these rules in. And basically, HMRC said the public sector needs to get its own house in order before they roll it out to the private sector. So we're now four years down the line. And you can see that, you know, the off payroll word of off payroll working rules have been in for the public sector for, for four years now. Um, so uh, with the rollout to the private sector, it was going to happen in April 2020, but due to COVID, et cetera, it's now been delayed and, and uh, was rolled out from April 2021. And we will cover this in a little bit more detail as we talk through, uh, but there are some changes to the new rules that will impact the public sector to how they currently had understood the rules to be. Awesome. So just to check that I've understood this for the lay people out there like me, basically HMRC introduced this to stop people who should have been working as employees, but were choosing to work via uh, personal service companies or other such intermediaries um, to, uh, you know, to pay less tax, basically. Is that an um, accurate understanding? Yeah, that, that, that's that's right, um, Tommy. And and it's not so much to say that they should be employees, but it's the, from the tax and national insurance position that they were looking at this to say, you, you know, if you've got somebody um, who's doing some work that's very similar to an employee, why should um, they pay less tax or national insurance for doing so? Yeah, okay. Um, so this is a massive question, um, but I, I'm going to ask it because this is what we get asked all the time. So when does the IR35 or the off-payroll working apply? Like what needs to be present for the off-payroll working or IR35 rules to be um, applied? Okay, so um, some of the key things that need to apply here, there has to be a personal service requirement. Um, and within the legislation, it talks about that uh, the individual, so that's going to be the worker, um, is required to provide their services personally to perform those duties. And the other thing that needs to be present is that those services or that worker needs to provide their services through their own intermediary. Now, quite often we talk about a personal service company. Um, and I think it would be fair to say that most people familiar with R35 would be familiar with that term, personal service company or, or, or PSC. Uh, but it also impacts um, other intermediaries. And I'm guessing for maybe the medical profession, something that might be more um, of interest to them would be around whether if it's a partnership or an LLP. So if you provide your services personally through a partnership or LLP, you could fall foul or be caught within the um, off-payroll working rules. And to be um, an intermediary for a partnership or LLP for part of these rules, the worker is either entitled to 60% or more of the profits from that partnership, um, or they get the income of the partnership is from a single client, or where the profit sharing ratios are based on the income from engagements that fall within the off-payroll working rules or IR35. So essentially, if you've got those two ingredients, then you could be looking at IR35. One of the other things to think about here, though, is that it's an engagement where a payment is made um, from the person receiving the client that will receive the services to an intermediary as well. So it's not going direct to the individual. 
Yeah, okay. That's a really nice summary of who it applies to. So again, just to recap, make sure I've understood this as a, a non-qualified person. Um, it apply or can apply to personal service companies, which is could be like a limited company that a doctor uses to do their private practice or something like that, or a locum would use for that. It also can apply to partnerships or limited liability partnerships. Is that right? That's right. It can do. Yeah. Um, and as I say, it's got the strict um, criteria as to when um, a partnership or LLP would be caught within the, the legislation. So I, I'd certainly urge partnership and LLPs to familiarise themselves with those rules just to see whether if they could be caught under um, the, the, those rules. Yeah. What about sole traders? Um, is that an issue? You can have an individual as well who provides the services. So if they're acting as, um, you, you know, like a third party um, to the uh, engagement, so that effectively you've got the end client who pays an individual who is then paying um, somebody else to then do the work, uh, you can end up in that type of arrangement that's caught by under off payroll working rules. Yeah. So that's that kind of intermediary thing that you mentioned. That's right, yeah. Uh, and the intermediary, it really is, is having somebody between <clears throat> or having something between the worker and the end client providing the services. Yeah, okay. Uh, I get it. Okay. Um, so let's move on to talk about the obligations of the end client. So what are public sector and now private sector uh, required to do under these rules? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we mentioned previously, for the public sector, these rules have been in place since April 2017. So that that is continuing. But for the private sector, businesses will now need to consider whether if they're small, medium or large. Um, and if they're a medium or large size business, they will now be required to assess the employment status of um, those workers who are providing their services personally. If they're a small business, then it's going to be the IR35, as we know it, going on as before, i.e. the personal service company is responsible for assessing the employment status. Now, just to uh, distinguish between what's a medium or large business, broadly, uh, it's if you've got a balance sheet of 5.1 million or more, or a turnover of 10.2 million or more, or more than 50 employees, if you meet two of those three, you'll be regarded as a medium or large business for these um, off-payroll working rules. Okay, awesome. So that's the type of entities that um, that are caught uh, under these rules. Now, what's changed with these rules is not the way that employment status is assessed, but it's who's responsible for assessing that. So these rules are flipped it up to the uh, end clients, and that's going to be the organisation receiving workers' services. Now, what they'll need to do is to um, assess uh, how those work, how the worker provides those services, um, and they'll look at some key indicators around whether how much control is present, whether if they can provide a substitute, and how much financial risk they would bear. Um, now, some of the things to think about around these employment status assessing is that you can't issue um, a blanket decision. So you can't say for all our off-payroll workers, we will regard them as inside R35 or outside R35. But what you can do is to make an assessment on a role-based um, uh, criteria. So if you've got a number of workers who are off-payroll workers, they provide their services under... Uh, similar contractual and working arrangements, you can do an overall assessment for that role and then issue each of those workers with their own status determination statement. Yeah, because that's something that I've seen a 
bit recently is just these blanket decisions. Um, so that's really interesting what you you just said about, about that. Um, and um, when you said inside or outside R35, can you just clarify what that means for the lay people out there? Yeah, so, so if, uh, if an engagement is regarded as inside R35, that means that it's going to be a deemed employment relationship so that any payments for that um, for those services will need to go through the payroll um, for tax and NIC withholding. If it's deemed outside IR35, then it's deemed to be uh, a genuine self-employed relationship. So you can just pay the invoices gross as you, as you would have done to any other supplier. Um, and, and I think, Tommy, just to, just to provide a bit more clarity on blanket decisions, what that doesn't mean is that if an organisation decides that we're not going to engage with off-payroll contractors, but we'll offer those contractors um, an employed role, then they can do that. That is not part of the blanket decision um, assessment or criteria that HMRC are looking for. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone through all of that. Uh, what, what do they need to do next? So once they've undertaken the um, the employment status um, assessments, they'll need to issue the, the personal service company or the, the intermediary uh, with um, a status determination statement or SDS. Now, there are some things that the SDS must include, uh, and that's got to be the reasons for arriving at your um, status decision, whether if it's, as we go back to this inside, outside IR35. Um, it's also got to say, um, as I say, include the reasons why you've arrived there. And as well, we're advocating putting on the relevant parts of the legislation uh, that you've referred to um, under these rules to say that this complies with, with, with that piece of legislation. Um, one of the other things to think about here as well is if you engage your off-payroll workers through an agency, then you will also need to provide the agency you engage with with that uh, a copy of the SDS. Okay, yeah, okay. And um, I think if you, there's an appeals process, is that is that worth mentioning? I know we're getting pretty technical here, but I think it's worth it because um, this is complicated, but there's a lot of doctors. So t- tell me about the appeals process. Yes, so there's a, it's what's called, um, you know, we, we refer to it as an appeals process, but technically it's known as a client-led disagreement uh, process. So <laughs> you'll be familiar, you know, get familiar with some of the terms. Um, and, I like that, a client-led but, disagreement process. <laughs> it is it, it's um it, it, it's a way of dressing something up to really that it is just an appeals process and under the appeals process any time during the contract um engagement that the worker's psc um or if they're in, uh, provide their services through um, an agency can appeal a decision uh, made by the end client now under that appeals process the end client needs to consider the grounds for the appeal um, that uh, is, is being submitted and go back to the PSC and or the agency uh, within 45 days with a new status determination statement. Now, if uh, they deem it to be um, no change in the employment status uh, from the original decision, that's final. Um, and then it would be down to the personal service company to um look at correcting anything they think is wrong through their personal tax returns. Um, If uh, the end client changes its decision, 
and thinks, well, actually, we've got it as inside R35 on reflection. We think it could be outside R35. Then uh, it can correct any um, payroll withholdings that it's made through the payroll um, once they've issued that new status determination statement. Okay, cool. Um, this is a really clear explanation. Uh, it's really helpful. So thank you for giving up your time today. It's great to have this level of expertise available to us. Um, we've talked a bit about employment status. Um, so do you want to tell us how employment status is assessed and anything else that you need to consider as well? Yeah, so, so I think the first thing um, to, to, to mention through this is, is that in the legislation, um, end clients um, are expected to apply um, a duty of care and it's regarded as, as reasonable care. And uh, HMRC has provided some guidance around what they think reasonable care would, would look like. But essentially what it comes down to is that um, end clients are accurately applying and keeping a record of the employment status principles um, and to reduce the risk of HMRC successfully challenging um, an employment status decision uh, if a client takes reasonable care and can think that, you know, we've got the right people who understand employment status, they understand how the workers providing their services to make an informed decision on that worker's employment status. So, you know, by taking that reasonable care, when we look at um, employment status, we think about some of the things that um, will determine whether somebody is employed or self-employed um it's not a case of a tick box exercise and saying oh we've got you know five factors of way in one side three on the other therefore it must be that we need to stand back and look at the whole picture and think about the quality of um the indicators that point towards uh, employment status so some of the things we'll look at is control and that's over how, where, and when the worker provides their services. Now, HMRC does provide some guidance with regards to specialists. And one of the examples they use are surgeons. They may not be under um, the control um, of anybody because they're specialists in their own right in performing the, the, the surgery. So in that instance, the control test might become a bit of a null and void um, point when assessing the employment status of surgeons. One of the other key things to look at is substitution. Um, so do you have a genuine right to provide somebody to provide the services in the worker's place? Um, and if that is a genuine right of substitution, um, that is a big indicator towards self-employment. But conversely, if the end client has a say um, in or a veto over that substitute, well, HMRC are going to regard that as personal services likely to be present. And this is where we come back to the legislation we were talking about previously for IR35 off payroll working law to apply there has to be personal service okay so can I just pick up on two things there so um, HMRC have given uh, I'm assuming in the employment income manual or other fascinating document that they publish uh, Ed likes to read those um, they've given a specific example of a surgeon um, with regards to control is that right that's right yeah yeah they, yeah. they, they mentioned that in there now okay. again it doesn't mean that automatically there's going to be no control, but it gives you an indication of where HMRC are looking at this. Um, and as I say, for the medical profession, you know, where it specifically mentions surgeons within that legislation, it's certainly worth um, keeping a note of that within your records to, that again, demonstrate you've taken reasonable care. Yeah, definitely. And then this substitution thing, if I understand that correctly, and please definitely correct me if I'm wrong. So say I am a surgeon and I'm 
doing some work at a hospital and I can't come on one day for whatever reason. So then me as the surgeon uh, has the right to send another a suitably qualified surgeon to do that job. Is that a fair summary of how substitution works or have I oversimplified it? No, that, that, that is a, a, a fair summary. Um, but what you also um, need to think about is to what can dilute the quality of that substitution clause would be if the hospital has a final say over the um, substitute surgeon. Uh, so if they say to the, to, to the current surgeon, for a replacement, you can only use a surgeon off an approved list um, that will, you know, that will be watering down a genuine substitution clause and for IR35 could actually mean that there's personal service present. Yeah, okay. Oh, awesome. Um, okay, and then I think there's some element of financial risk, which is an indication of employment status. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so, so again, what we're looking at here um, is, is around uh, whether if somebody's got the ability to make a profit um, out of their um, business activities. So again, um, you, you know, you might be looking at, um, you know, you've got control over your pricing, um, how quickly you can get work turned around, uh, you still get paid the same amount. Um, and also whether if you provide your own pr- uh, equipment or materials, um, and, and also um, if you've got your own business expenses. So if you've got premises, you know, some hefty insurances that you need to pay to do your work, those sorts of things will indicate whether if financial risk is present or not. There are some other factors to consider um, and that would be whether if you're regarded as part and parcel of the organisation. So looking from the outside in, would you look any different um, to the average layperson, to somebody else doing a similar role within that organisation if there is someone? Um, and there's some personal factors are, as well around how many other clients do you have? Are you in business in your own right or are you just providing your services for one uh, end client at a time? Okay. and. Um, I think sometimes locums think that they're automatically self-employed. Um, give us some more detail about that. Yeah, so specifically for locums, um, it, it's not an it's not an automatic case that they'll be regarded as self-employed, uh, and and it's really um, you know if they're stepping into say GP practice, are they stepping in to replace that GP, um, or are they going in to assist? So again. Um, you know, you need to step back, you need to look at the contractual arrangements, you need to look at what's happening um, on on the ground in terms of how that locum is providing their services uh, to then really assess whether if they should be uh, deemed as having a genuine self-employed relationship or a deemed employment uh, employed relationship. Okay, I don't want to go, well, I do want to go far down the rabbit hole because I love this sort of stuff, but you just said (laughs) something interesting there. So if a GP locum is to replace the GP or to assist them, can you give us a bit more detail about that? Yeah, so so you might have, um, you you know, a GP um, that maybe is left to practice um, and you're bringing in a locum to to, um, fill that um, hole whilst you're looking for a new partner. Um, so that could be much more seen as a replacement and the G and the locum, um, you, you know, depends on how much they earn, how they get paid, you know, are they being paid a fixed amount um, or do they have an opportunity to profit um, or are they just coming in to say that, you, you know, to provide maybe a bit of holiday cover 
Um, and, and on that instance, you know, that could be much more seen. You're just coming in to assist the GP um, and, and therefore that could be more indicative of um, uh, an employed relationship. But again, there's no hard and fast rule. We can't just look at this and say, just because you do that, that single thing in its own right means that it's an employed or self-employed relationship. We need to look back at the bigger picture. But these are just some of the things to bear in mind. Uh, when forming um, employment status decisions. Yeah, okay. And then, as you said, uh, keeping good documentation is is the key to most financial things, but here especially. So you would expect this to be all documented, you know, in an employment status uh, decision. So we assess you as outside IR35 for control, substitution, financial risk, all of these reasons. That's how the report or whatever would look. Is that is that right? That, that's right. Uh, uh, and whilst you say that oh, we think because maybe control is present and Maybe there's not a genuine right of substitution, um, but it's worth also recording as to why you're um, saying that those weight teams are perhaps pointing towards employment or, or, or self-employment so that you can actually evidence the decisions that you've arrived at. Um, you know, and, and some of the other things that we're looking at as well is around, you know, HMS, um, sorry, NHS engagements, you know, generally they'll be regarded as employment income anyway. Um, and PAYE and NIC should be applied to any payments for um, NHS engagements. So again, you can see that we've got the split between the public sector, the NHS payments, and what doctors might earn out of their own private practices. Yeah, okay. And um, tell me about office holders, because this can apply to loads of different doctors, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, and and it's not just um, it's not just NHS engagements, but it can apply to um, some of the um, CCGs, etc. As well, I've seen a lot of that in 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 my career. Um, and and essentially, an office holder, um, it's not uh, legislated for, but it has been judicially defined as a, a position that has a degree of permanence uh, which extends beyond the tenure of one man i.e. the person who's who's filling that role. Um, so if we think about, um, say, a CCG, um, for, for instance, it's got its own constitution and it might say that in order for that CCG to exist, it needs a number of positions to be filled and one of them might be a clinical lead. Um, so we've got, um, you, you know, that position is always going to be there. Um, and it's in the constitution of the, the, the CCG, uh, whether if it's filled or not by one person. So that is something that would indicate that it's an office role. Um, and, and again, another thing that indicates whether if an office is, has been established is if it's been created by some sort of constitution deed or, or, or some other um, instrument or written document. Um, now, the thing with office holders is that they are auto, if you hold the position of an office, it's automatically employment income. And that is within the legislation. And this is something that um, we've seen over the years. The message still hasn't got out there that office holders are automatically um, caught under the um, employment income rules. And therefore, any payments for office holders should go through um, the payroll for tax and IC withholding. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this is a big one. Um, let's talk a bit about agency locum doctors, because this is a, a question we get a lot. Yeah. So, so again, um, where, um, you have, um, an individual, um, 
who an agency doctor operating as an individual. So they're a self-employed individual. They don't have the personal service company. Um, and they're supplied to maybe um, um, a GP practice. They're pro- pro- supplied to a hospital through uh, an employment agency. Um, then what we're looking at there is whether if supervision, direction or control is present. Now, the supervision, direction and control test isn't around over uh, direct control over the worker. It can be provided by anybody. And because uh, the doctor or the agency doctor providing their work or their services will be under the supervision, direction and control of a clinical governance body, that is enough for SDC to be present. And when that occurs, then the agency must pay the agency doctor uh, via the payroll. Um, so that, that that is going to be the case in, in nearly all agency relationships. So we're into a slightly different set of rules from the off-payroll working rules or into the agency's legislation. But you will find that agency doctors, if an agency is saying, we can pay you, um, gross without payroll withholding um, is something I would look into really carefully. Uh, yeah. It's just too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good tip there for agency doctors. And uh, in general, if something does look too good to be true, unfortunately, it usually turns out to be the case. Um, okay. Um, so shall we talk about the costs or implications, shall we say, of getting this wrong? Because I think there's been a few judgments uh, already that you're going to tell us about. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, and, and recently, um, certainly within the last 12 months or so, uh, the NHS was fined um, for over £4 million uh, for uh, making incorrect status decisions. Now, they used um, HMRC's uh, Check of Employment Status Tax tool or CEST, um, as it's known, uh, to go through um, their off-payroll workers and assess whether somebody was deemed to have an employed or self-employed relationship, and they were coming up with with a self-employed relationship. HMRC had undertaken a review um, and actually said, we disagree with that, uh, one its case, and deemed that the workers were uh, held an employed relationship. So the NHS had to pay over the additional tax NRCs that should have been um, withheld had they deemed it to be uh, an employed relationship. Now, this is interesting because HMRC has said that it will stand by its assessed results because it is a bit of a blunt tool, um, but it is something that does help um, the layperson assess employment status, which can be a really complex area. Um, But what HMRC will say is that the person entering the information or completing the CEST must have um, knowledge and an understanding of employment status. Um, So we don't know the full facts behind it, but we can only assume that HMRC could successfully say that people within the NHS who are completing CEST um, in HMRC's view, didn't have the required knowledge or understanding of um, employment status when completing that tool. Um, and, and HMRC um, have issued some um, guidance around what they deem as um, reasonable care. And they do say it's having someone with a good understanding of the work to be undertaken involved in the determination state, in the determination process. 
or when someone who encounters a situation of which they have limited experience to take care to find out the correct tax treatment or seek appropriate professional advice. Um, so we think that that's probably the grounds that HMRC went back and successfully challenged the NHS um, on that. Yeah, that's really interesting because my obviously incorrect understanding of the CEST tool was that it was to allow uh, you know, employer employees employees to uh, have a, a you know assess themselves. But what you're saying is, it kind of is, but you need to know what you're doing with it. Is that right? It, well, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, def- definitely, Tommy. It, it is. Um, you know, incest is there for everyone to use. Um, you know, whether if you're the end client, you're the worker, or if you're some sort of um, agency in the in the middle, um, you know, to assess employment status. But ultimately, the way it needs to be completed accurately reflects the actual working arrangements, um, not just the contractual arrangements. So, you, you, you know, that's where HMRC do have their caveat um, to to challenge um, assessed results. Yeah, and that's a tool that's just available to everyone on the HMRC website. So you might like to check that out um, with the caveats that you've just uh, given us there, Glenn. Um, the other thing I want to pick up on, them, which is interesting to me, is like so um, HMRC won a four million pound case against the NHS, uh, and the NHS, i.e., the employer, picked up the tab for that bill. Is that how it works, or does it depend? No, that that's how it works. So. Um... Uh, what, what will happen in, in, in practice um, is that the end client will be held liable for the tax analyses that are due. Um, there can be some mitigation for taxes already paid by the contractor, um, but that's going to be depend where if they've paid their taxes as a self-employed individual or through a personal service company. Uh, and that's something that the Chartered Institute of Taxation are currently looking into with HMRC, because if the um, personal service company has paid corporate tax and, and, and dividend tax because that's how they've withdrawn the funds, then there's no set off against the end client's um, liability. Whereas if you've got maybe a sole trader or a self-employed individual who pays income tax and, and, and national class four national insurance, those amounts can be offset to mitigate some of the overall liability. Ouch, that sounds a bit punitive. So let me just get that right. Because um, So if you're a limited company and you've paid your corporation tax, etc., uh, and then you get caught by this, you cannot offset that corporation tax already paid to mitigate the tax charge that you've created by um, this. Is that is that right? That That's the current understanding. Um, and that's Ouch. how we, we've seen yeah. it work in practice. But there are representations now being made to say that you know, it's a bit unfair because you do end up in a position where you could have double taxation, i.e. the um, personal service company pays the corporate tax and dividend tax. Yeah. And then HMRC review the position, deem it to be employed, and then go after that end client for the tax analyses as well. Yeah. Okay. Um. Ouch. Okay. This has been so useful and we've gone in really a good level of detail which hopefully listeners appreciate and it's been really good um give us some sort of summary if you're an employee first what would you say some things to do or think about and and then if you're an employer so if you start with what should employees do okay so so for an employee um there's not really much you can do in terms of um, employment status because you are an employee so you will be paid via the payroll um you, you know, if you're um, a self-employed personal um, um, personal service company contractor, um, 
what you can do is use SES to assess how you think you perform um, your, your services to help you decide whether if you think you're employed or, or, or have a, a self-employed um, relationship. And this is on a contract by contract basis as well. Um, so, you know, if you've got a number of engagements with different um, NHS trusts or, or GP practices, etc., you would need to look at each individual contract and do that assessment. Um, if you're the engager um, or the, the, the end client, the employer, uh, deemed employer, so to speak, it's about, you know, you need to familiarise yourself with these rules. You need to make sure that you've got robust controls and processes in place and fully document the decisions you're taking. You need to be aware of your contractor workforce. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've seen throughout our work in, in, in IR35 is that organisations think that they have a relatively small contractor workforce, but once they start um, reviewing their suppliers list, they've been surprised at just how many they have on board. And the thing with employment status is that um, unpaid liabilities can rack up quite quickly. And if you think HMRC could go back to up to six years for tax and MRCs um, on a um, just multiplication, um, you know, those liabilities can can rack up and be substantial quite quickly. Yeah. Okay. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for your time discussing this really complicated, but really important subject. Um, I'll drop your contact details in the show notes below um, in case uh, somebody needs to contact you. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today on the Medics Money podcast. That's great. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks again.